Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're working in partnership with Charles Tirrett across the ashes. As part of the partnership, Charles Tirrett are offering the chance to win a £500 voucher to spend on their site. You've only got a few days remaining to enter. Entries close on the 23rd of December. To enter the competition, simply follow the link in the podcast description and also look out for it on our social channels over the coming days. We've also previously mentioned our exclusive offer for the Wisden audience where you can enjoy 20% off everything with the code WISDEN20 at Charles Tirrett. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. Australia are 2-0 up in the 2021 22 Ashes as England couldn't quite cling on for the draw on the final day at Adelaide. They were dropped, catches a couple of painful blows to the skipper, another dramatic first innings collapse. They're six foot five opening bowler, bowling offies. Five more frustrating days for Joe Root's men in Australia all round. I'm Yazran and with me today is Wisdom.com features editor Tar Ashim. The magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, and the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner. If our sound quality is, is not quite what it normally is, it's because we're recording remotely, thanks to Omicron. Um, James asks, what hobbies would you recommend me taking up, considering that watching England play cricket really isn't working out for me? Um, ben, what should James take up instead? Yeah, I don't know. It does, it does feel... The, the, the thing that gets me with watching England play cricket is like the, the hope that gets there, like... When it just like absolutely you shouldn't basically there's like you just veer between hoping that like somehow this could somehow turn out okay and then realizing that no everything is going to go badly and that England basically don't have a hope so uh I mean I don't know but brewing brewing beer maybe that could be a that could, <laughs> that could be something I mean, it was it was it was day two, wasn't it? That that was the, the no, sorry, day three. Kind of felt like day two because Australia's first innings was slow and long. Uh, when England were what they had that partnership, and it was actually that that was the worst bit because the, the collapse felt so inevitable, even when that partnership was in process. Basically, like uh, uh, that's exactly what happened in the first test. Uh, that partnership happens, and then 
they collapse. He's all that 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 was the the bit that almost made me lose hope. And then Butler goes and plays like he does uh, on the final day, and you kind of think that you know m- maybe if England just can you know even draw one of these last three or you know put put up a, there's a, there's sort of a thriller in there that'll be enough to keep the faith for me personally. So I, I'd say stick with the cricket for now. Uh, but yeah, it can be pretty bleak at times. I would just get some sleep, right? You know, just rest up till the new year. Why, why you, you know, just don't stay up all night and watch this um, like I've done for the last five days. It's, uh, you know, just, just you know, get a good good night's kip. Just get a nice routine going. Don't, don't do this whole thing where you stay up all night and watch cricket. It's just not worth it. So as, as you allude to, you stayed up to watch all five days. Um, England have now lost 11 of their last 12 tests in Australia. You watched every ball of this one. Did you feel like you've seen this match before? Yeah, I mean, at times I thought I was watching highlights of the uh, 2017-18 Adelaide test. It was pretty much kind of kind of went in that same formula, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, it was kind of also a bit of a rerun of the last test in a way. It's just, it's it's pretty much a predictable pattern with England it's just you kind of expect the little sort of um top top order wobble um then you kind of see the root and root going and uh, a new little feature to the to, to England in 2021 has been the the Dawid Milan kind of resurgence so that's that kind of helped root go for a bit they build a little partnership um and then it's not just oh there's one dismissal there's the sort of little middle order collapse and then and then it all just sort of comes crumbling down. Uh, and England's bowlers never really have a chance after that, do they? Um, there's been a lot of sort of talk about across the last two tests about, you know, which bowler should have played in this test. In the first test, Stuart Broad should have played there. In the second test, it was Mark Wood should have played there. Um, but that doesn't really matter if you're not really going to score many runs in your first innings, because then you're always kind of chasing the game. Um, England obviously started bowling a bit fuller in the, in their second inning in Australia's second innings this time around and the, and they improved um but they were already the game was already kind of gone uh, because of the the first innings lead uh so it's just the same sort of repetitive nature of it which is um which is intriguing to to watch I'd say Joe I remember we said at the start of the Chris Silverwood era when they lost 1-0 in New Zealand on two roads um, at Mount Monganui and, and then Drew at Hamilton. And we said that actually drawing tests that you otherwise would have lost is quite important for this England team, especially looking back at the 17-18 Ashes. This felt like a test that a decent side just wouldn't have lost. Australia scoring that 400, but pretty slowly and England having that first innings collapse and still almost getting the draw. Australia were missing Pat Cummins and, and Josh Hazelwood. Pat Cummins quite dramatically through COVID-related issues on the on the morning of the match. And those drop catches as well, that, that felt like a really missed opportunity for England to, to at least escape with the draw. Yeah, I was thinking exactly the same thing this morning as I was watching Butler and Mokes and then Butler and then Robinson, thinking this England should have, should have been able to get away with a draw here. I mean, you could argue that for England to actually have any chance in this series, they probably needed to win this test match. Uh, obviously, mathematically, they can fight back, but it doesn't, doesn't look likely. But... If they're fighting for for pride in this series, which I think is realistically what what they are doing, then this should have been one that they shouldn't have lost. They didn't need to lose, as you say, without Cummins and Hazelwood. Um, that was a real glimmer of hope. And and again, you look, you have to look at the the batting really, and 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 also the catching. I, actually, I was going to ask you as you said last time, you were surprised that Phil and I were were angry, and you were finding it funny. Were you still finding it funny throughout throughout this test match? 
There are definitely some very, very funny bits. So Joe Root getting hit in the box. Joe Root then trying to run uh, the four English seamers bowling between 78 and 84 miles per hour, going quite economically, but not taking many wickets. That was quite funny. Joss Butler standing on his stumps for the first time in his whole career. That was that was quite funny. Um, it was tragic. It was tragic, but also also funny. But yeah, I mean, yes. this, this is. I think this will be remembered as uh, the Joss Butler Test match. Uh, which, for anyone who hadn't seen the game, just looks at a scorecard, it would look like he'd had almost no role in it whatsoever, and that he'd got a duck and twenty odds. But obviously, if you're watching closely, there were the drop catches, there were the brilliant catches, there was the pathos of that second innings dismissal and it, it kind of encapsulated Josh Butler's test career all in, in one game really that the kind of the, the glimmers of hope the the disappointment the dispute that he causes between those who back him and those who don't and I think who listen to the show would would say we're probably more on his side than than the average and probably a lot of listeners find that quite frustrating wondering why do we still say Butler's worth worth a crack well Today's innings was a little example, not a characteristic example of, of why I think we do want him in that side because to, to pull out that performance, albeit in the end it was broadly pointless, uh, given what he'd gone through in that match, shows, shows the ticker of the bloke, shows his, his, uh, his drive and determination. As we were exchanging WhatsApp messages over the course of that match, I said, purely speculative, you haven't got any sources or links here, but... I just said to, to you guys, I can see Butler retiring from Test cricket very soon here because what, what's what's in it for him really? He's a, he's a white ball king. He's got the white ball captaincy around the corner. Um, he's got a young family. Does he need all this? Well, he doesn't really. But the second inning showed that however tough the Test match has been for him, he still desperately wants it. Um, and you know there are there are very few positives to take from the, the Test series so far. And Butler will still be absolutely distraught that he dropped the catches that he did. Um, but we can at least take something from from his uh, display of kind of grit and determination with the bat on day five. When you sent that WhatsApp message, I think a lot of people were thinking the same. He looked so down after after the drop catches. And I guess it was almost impressive for him to bat like that, given the test match he'd, he'd had. Um, ben... What what do you make of, of Butler as a test batter? He's, he's played now 50, 50 odd test matches, and there have been some brilliant moments. Um, the the innings against Pakistan last year, he had a really good year in twenty eighteen, really good tour of Sri Lanka in twenty eighteen as well. But you get the sense that he, his almost his best moments always almost come in quite extreme conditions uh, and and scenarios. And actually, it's constructing a normal first innings score of. 80 plus is what he actually finds most difficult almost. Yeah, I'd say that, um, I mean, I found some of the criticism of Joss Butler in this test match uh, understandable because, you know, it's an Ashes series and emotions are heightened, but quite harsh, really. I mean, he he didn't have a great game with the gloves, uh, but that that was uncharacteristic, I think. I mean, he is in general a better keeper than what he showed in this test match. I think at least one of those drops, the one late on the first day, I don't think in a way is exactly... I mean, it obviously is a keeping error because he's a wicket and he's made the catch, but it's not. He hasn't dropped that because he's a bad wicket, but he's dropped it because it's a brain fade. It's the same as like a, uh, you know, almost like a batter who has a like a, a, a mix-up run out that's like a horrible mistake, but it's not like a, uh, you wouldn't use that to say they're a bad batter. It's just like, in, in, like it's, you know, they've, their mind switched off for a second and that's what's happened. Uh, but yeah, but Butler as a batter, I feel like some of the criticism as well is because it is because of how good a white ball player 
he is, and he's not as good a test cricketer as he is a white ball player. I mean, few test cricketers as good at test cricket as Josh Butler is at white ball cricket. Uh, but that then means that if you look at the test cricketer actually is, it's it's not it's not that bad on the whole. Basically, like if you look since it was recalled to the test side in what uh, 2018, from then until now, he averages like 34, which is not great. But by England standards, it's the third best after Stokes and Root by a reasonable distance. Uh, I think having a it would be good. I mean, I think it's a fair point to say that he struggles with a sort of a blank canvas and kind of like an open-ended situation. He is better when there's a specific challenge set in front of him. But as a wicketkeeper at number seven, you will often have kind of specific challenges put in front of you. So it's not the it's 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 not the biggest thing that I mean. He, I think it's, it's interesting because he was picked to be the guy who would come in when it was 250 for five and taken 500, which is obviously a very very optimistic plan because England are never. 250 for five and they've kind of lucked out and I actually think he is quite good when England are actually 150 for five and he has to figure out what is the best way to adapt he's not I'm not saying he's brilliant at it I'm not saying he's a brilliant test player but I think that he isn't he's quite a long way from being the issue with this England team albeit he did contribute to the defeat in this test match because of the drop catches and there are better keepers out there for sure but I think that Joss Butler even just as a batter is one of the better ones that England have right now, even if that's not if that's not saying very much. I found it quite interesting um, watching this innings. It kind of reminded me in, in a really weird sort of contrasting way of the the knock he played against Pakistan last year at Old Trafford. The I think seventy odd or something that basically won the game in the fourth innings. I mean, the obvious comparison was because he was building a partnership with Chris Wokes. But on that occasion, he was obviously in such a he was in such a bad run of form um, and. The pitch was turning. Yasha Shah was, you know, bowling into the rough. That he kind of set his mind and he decided, I'm just, I'm going to go for it. And so he played, you know, one of his most attacking innings Test cricket. He swept well. He just, he kind of went for it. And this innings was kind of, in a way, quite similar. He knew what he had to do. He knew he had to just block out the day. There was a clear, um, there was a clear way he had to go about it. Um, and so I think that clarity of mind, knowing the situation kind of helped him today, um, which is why he produced, you know, his second longest test innings. He knew exactly um, what, what, what was kind of required from him. I think the, the problem he probably has sometimes is he's kind of caught in between, you know, the expectations of, of him as this kind of aggressor who can take that white ball mode into red ball mode and then caught between the idea of which he, which he said repeatedly that, he knows that you can't just do that, that you have to bat properly. You have to be aware of your off stump, but then you can also see him clearly struggling with that at times because he's, he's prodding at balls outside off stump and that's how he's kind of got out of this whole series. Um, so it's just, uh, yeah, it's just a, he's still such a, I mean, the, you know, what Joe said about this kind of test summing up where he is as a test cricketer, the fact that we finished his test match, he's played this innings and you still don't really understand what he's at, he is as a test cricketer kind of sums it up as well. What what I would say as well that a lot of people kind of point to Ben Folks out the side, and I'm a massive fan of Ben Folks, but I I don't think Ben Folks averages much more than 34 over a three year period in the same way that that Butler has, and I don't think Butler's keeping is actually quite as bad as people make it out to be as well. I mean the, the stats going around that he he takes more. Uh, I think he takes about 90% of the chances that come to him, which is above the, the global average real wicketkeeper in Test cricket over the last few years. So I think that that is worth saying as well. Joe, one of the more memorable sections of the game was the sight of 
Ollie Robinson bowling off spin and then Dawid Milan and Joe Root taking four second innings wickets between them. Um, it's easy for us to say in hindsight, but given how the pitch played, did England get the makeup of the side slightly wrong? Um, like, like in Brisbane, not going with the pitch they were confronted with really and then not picking Jack Leach um, after what, 13 overs of, of carnage at Brisbane. Do, do you, you can understand why England went the way they did. They got four, they got five quicks who, who they backed to do well in these conditions and Leach didn't go well in Brisbane. But do you think England should have backed Leach here or is that just speaking with the benefit of hindsight, really? Um, well, I think it is speaking with the benefit of hindsight. Well, it definitely is speaking with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, you know, it go, almost goes without saying, if England had a spinner that they trusted, then they should have played at Adelaide. The problem is they shouldn't have played him at the Gabba. He got hit around and now they don't have enough faith in him to pick him when they should. And, and this is a very difficult situation to get off. I didn't, I wouldn't have picked Leach before, for this test. Um, for that reason, I just think there was too much risk that Australia would knock him out of the attack. Um, and I thought Root could just do a job. And, you know, that's, that's sort of just about played out. My concern, my main um, gripe with the team or I suppose sole gripe with this team was that Mark Wood didn't play, and I just, I just think that was crazy. And I, I think that that is not with the benefit of hindsight. I think that was what most people were saying on as soon as they announced that twelve-man squad and Wood wasn't in it. I think a lot of people, even though we all understand Wood's fitness issues and um, the fact that he's not going to play five tests in these series, despite that, I still think he needed to play this test match. And he'd only bowled in in one innings basically in the previous game. Um, and England won, were one nil down with four to play. Now they're two nil down with three to play, and it's basically gone. Um, so I think you you play the best team that you can at that point, rather than worrying about who you're going to pick for the for the next test. And that really showed that that kind of one pace nature of of England's attack as as Labuschagne and Warner kind of ground them down. Um, and again, I didn't. They, England definitely bowled too short, and I think. It was interesting in Root's post-match press conference, or sorry, not press conferences, chat with Ali Mitchell on, on BT, that he was critical of, of England for bowling too short. And, and then they definitely did. And I thought they were actually really quite poor with the second new ball, Broaden Anderson, even though Anderson should have had Labuschagne and obviously Butler dropped that catch. They just didn't get it right. And part of it was the radar was slightly off, which is unusual, but also it seems to just be the tactics weren't right and that they weren't getting up there enough. But for Root to then say afterwards that England weren't bowling full enough is quite interesting, I think, because my take on that, I don't know what you guys thought, was that he was saying, he wasn't saying we got our tactics wrong. He was suggesting that the bowlers weren't following the advice that was given, which is an interesting one. If that is the case, are are, are the bowlers deliberately not following Root's advice? Are they not getting right? Are they not bowling as in the way that they want to? Is it just a case of being a bit rusty? Because if Root is telling his bowlers to do one thing and they're doing another, that is quite a, a, an issue with your captain. Um, and, you know, there's always this dynamic. Cook had the same thing. Broad and Anderson have got so many test wickets, got so much weight behind them that it's hard to tell them no or hard to tell me you're doing this wrong. But, but it was quite clear to certainly and people who know a lot more about these things, the commentators were, were tearing their hair out because they needed to just pitch it up. And, and when they did, they started to take wickets. And when Australia did, they took wickets. So that's a real question mark over Root's captaincy and, and a kind of challenge to him for the rest of the series. Is he going to be able to get his bowlers to do what he wants or is he going to take a step back and essentially let the game flow even though it's not going in the direction that he wants it to? 
There, there are conflicting messages coming out there as well because um, Anderson and Broad have, have had limited but some success in Australia by bowling dry, but uh, by not giving many runs away. And England have talked in the past about playing attritional cricket. And you can kind of see how, how that could work. But then Root seems to be saying something quite different. He, he wants he seems to want his bowlers to pitch up. Ben, you you were saying that you do see the merit in Anderson in particular bowling slightly back a length. He he has had quite a lot of success in Australia doing that in the past, and also had England caught their catches. You could see Australia being bowled out for about three fifty instead of four fifty, and then you'd expect a, a decent batting side to to put up a similar total in response. Yeah, that that's kind of what I felt even at the end of of day one when England were getting quite a lot of criticism. I did, I did understand the criticism to an extent because, uh, you know, England were bowling a bit too short. They, they'd shot themselves in the foot a bit because they dropped those catches. Uh, it, it could have been a very different story with Australia sort of like 220 for four or five rather than 222. And then you are saying that's England's day. But then also, I think you do see... T, like, I mean, it was 225, wasn't 325. Well, 222 rather than 322, which is sort of the story we've been more used to in a way from playing test cricket in Australia. And you do see not that infrequently 220 for two turning into 350 all out. That that actually almost quite an England thing to do, wouldn't it? To have like quite a, a good day with the bat uh, and then sort of feel pretty chuffed for yourself. Actually, they're not making not enough. And then the other team make loads. That, that's kind of... And then as, as you kind of said early on, sometimes when you're up against, uh, you know, a team that has Labashane, Smith and Warner in it, uh, you are going to bowl dry, bowl pretty well, and they are still going to make 500 because those are three like great test batters. And on those occasions, then you kind of settle for the draw. You think, okay, we've restricted them to just under 500 in a little bit under two days. We need to bat okay here and we'll get out with the draw reasonably comfortably. But England batted awfully on day three. It was the, the, the worst day of the series by... A distance for them, I think, because there was kind of there was no real mitigation there. It was it was not a difficult pitch to bat on. Australia were missing uh, two their two two of their best bowlers, uh, their two best bowlers, uh, and they had Root and Malani showing the way to do it, and they still kind of threw it away. That's why that was so bad because I think they bowled okay, and it on another day might have been enough to set up a possible chance for win, and should have been enough to set up a reasonably comfortable draw, and it wasn't on on the leech thing. Um, I think it's probably, it's probably partly down to just lack of faith. And obviously if England had, you know, Shane Warne or Graham Swan, they would have picked him and they pick him every time. But I think it is also due to this, this weird sort of fascination and misunderstanding England have of how the pink ball works and the pink ball test in general. I mean, we saw that in, in India as well, when they picked, uh, picked all the seamers and then got beaten in two days with Joe Root taking five for eight. But they kind of, they pick a team for pink ball tests to bowl, you know, 20 minutes with a new ball under lights, forgetting that that's like, like 10% of, of the whole test match. I mean, I think one of the things we discussed in the pod is that it would need to come down to how the pitch looked because you do sometimes get with these pink ball tests that they leave a bit more grass on it and then you wonder if you're heading towards a short game. But this pitch never looked like that. Uh, and that's where you think, okay, Nathan Nine has a good record in pink ball test match. He's got a good record at Adelaide. Spinners in general have a good record at Adelaide. Uh, and they picked Leach in that squad as well, in that 12-man squad just before the, uh, uh, just before the team was announced. Uh, and so it says to me that like they kind of did just get the sort of like almost like a cartoon character uh, when they see like a you know a, a pie on a shelf they're sort of like the dollar signs start running their eyes and their tongue starts hanging out or whatever because they see a pink ball and lights and they think right that's it we're just uh, 
just pick all all five seamers and let it just like hoop away, which is like like a very like outdated understanding of how the pink ball actually functions. And they've been like it's hurt them before this year, and they've still made basically the same mistake, I think, uh, by not picking spinner at Adelaide, which is where you pick spinner, I guess. I don't know. But Ben, if that is the case, how, how can that possibly happen? Given the level, level analysis, the, the team they have around them, the, the data they have at their disposal, how, if that is genuinely the case, how can they keep getting that kind of stuff wrong? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, in terms of the data, there was a good, good piece by uh, Crick versus Ben Jones on how the pink ball in Australia generally functions, and it's it's pretty clear that you get a bit more swing than the red kookaburra ball for the first 15 overs and then actually a lot less swing so that in general it's the same amount of swing and the seam movement is like the seam movement is a little bit more than the red kookaburra so in general it's a little bit more helpful for the seamers but not much more but that's what the data says and it also says that under lights not that many more wickets, or no more wickets fall than usual uh the bowlers are average more than usual doesn't move more than usual that's kind of just like something just is said to get excited about and i guess the other way you can sort of look at it is that like England sort of had to play Broad and Anderson because they're Broad and Anderson and because of, like, part, partly because they're two brilliant bowls, also partly because of the hold they have over the team. And all of a sudden, when you're looking at that squad they've picked, then you've got to pick Robinson, who was your best bowler in the first test, and you've got to pick Wokes because you need someone to bat at number eight, and then you end up leaving out Leach by default, whereas actually, like, fine, you leave Stuart Broad out two tests in a row, but you pick a spinner because you don't need four very similar bowlers to, to, because, it, because it might swing under lights, basically. Like, I, I don't know how they made that mistake, but I think one thing that has been shown in the series is that England have spoken a lot about their plans, but maybe they've planned for a very specific thing and there's, as soon as a few things have kind of acted to main, that mean those plans have gone awry, that they've then not known how to adjust those plans on the hoof, I guess. It just seems like they're not very good at improvising. Um, the, the wood thing that, that Joe mentioned right at the start, I mean, that... That, that sounds like a plan you make, you know, before any cricket's played. But surely once you're 1-0 down in an Ashes series as well, and you know that once you're 1-0 down, um, and, and with Australia, you know, they already have the urn and that kind of thing. And now after going 2-0 up, they're just, they're a draw away from, from you know, um, retaining it. It, it. Just, that that was that was probably the most baffling thing. I kind of... I didn't have too many problems with uh, England selection in the first test, but the the word one f- for this one has just made um, is just the one that that I, I've, I've struggled with the most. I think I think the the straight top would be would be Wokes, but then picking Wokes as well, you can kind of see what they're thinking. They're thinking about the extra batting security and that kind of I don't know. It just it just kind of shows your sort of mindset when you are just thinking, oh, you know, we kind of need Chris Wokes at number eight, which kind of tells you about the problems that are going on in the batting beforehand. Joe, can I ask you about Chris Wokes? A lot of us expected him to do better this time around in Australia, albeit from a small sample side. He'd looked to have improved um, as a bowler away from home using the Kookaburra uh, over, over the last couple of years. He, he bowls at pretty good pace, probably the quickest of the England bowlers uh, on show at Adelaide. He, he's pretty accurate, gets the ball to nip around a bit. Why do you think it's not quite happened for him this series? Yeah, it's, it's a real head scratch. I mean, Butch said on this show right at the start, he'd have Wokes above Anderson. Uh, I think he was basically saying he'd pick him above all of England's seamers. And I think there was a sort of general agreement, obviously bolstered by the fact that he can actually bat, which the rest of England's tail can't. Um, he looked like the smart pick, but he just, and he's bowled 
tidily enough. I mean, he, he's certainly, he's not gone around the park, um, but he just hasn't really looked like taking wickets. There was that genuine edge off what Labuschagne in the, in the first test, um, where you kind of just feel like oh, maybe that goes to hands and things, things fall, fall differently. But what he took one tail end wicket across two innings at Adelaide. Um, he did get, he was obviously not taking the new ball, but he did get a chance to, to bowl under lights in some, in theory, favourable conditions. So the, the, it was all there for him, but it's just, there's just seems to be a kind of a bit of a lack of zip, which it's hard to kind of put your finger on, really. I would say he was also a bit guilty of bowling a little bit too short. Um, and perhaps, again, that was falling into that. He's so intent on bowling dry and not letting Australia get away that he didn't actually do the thing that makes him most dangerous and, and why you want him in the side in the first place, which is to get, get the ball pitched up and moving away and getting the slip cordon into, into action. Not that they're likely to catch it at the moment, which is another... That was... A, <laughs> amongst all of this, they were touching on this on the BT coverage that obviously... The batting and bowling isn't going great, but actually, before we even get to that discussion, there are so many basics that England are just getting wrong, which just aren't even giving themselves a chance. Like not being able to keep your foot behind the line and bowling as many no balls as they have. The uh, obviously the catching has been horrendous, uh, shown up by the fact that Australia's has been brilliant, um, and then even like the ground fielding, England's ground fielding is sloppy, and I just I. This isn't a defence, it's, it's just the reality. If you look down that England side, it is not a good fielding team. I mean, it hasn't been for a while now, but it is not a particularly athletic lineup, um, And it, it's really been shown up by Australia in this series so far. There's a, a gaping chasm between the kind of athleticism of the Australian side and, and the English side in the field. One of the other things, just like basic things that you noticed, was like catches just kept on dropping short. And you, you kind of think, even I mean, it was made quite the the point was made on commentary as well, but it just seemed like a kind of kind of an obvious one where it's just like, can you not just move in a bit closer? Um, and it's yeah, it just seems like they've just they they weren't adapting to that. The point on on the basics is a really really good one. I think it's actually one that kind of in in a way, I mean, obviously people talked about the no balls and about the drop catches, but. Just overall, with this England team, you, they kind of feel almost undercoached in some ways. Like the coaching team has spent so long planning, they haven't actually uh, coached them too much. I think if you're looking sort of wide scale at what is... So the, the biggest reason why England are 2-0 down is because their batting hasn't been good enough. And the curious thing about that is that I think, you know, just over a year ago, we were kind of all sitting here saying that England had the makings of a, a pretty good test batting lineup. You know, they had... a Sibley could bat time. They had Burns, who sort of been around the mill and was looking like he crack at Test cricket. They had Crawley and Pope, two of the most exciting young bats in the world. And those players have all uh, gone backwards. There are a couple of things, I guess, outside of coaching and mitigation that have worked against that. The India tour, I guess, uh, messed them up a bit, just in terms of, you know, they had to find a completely new way to bat, different to how they'd done before. And then all of a sudden, a lot of them were kind of fighting for their places or fighting to keep their averages above 30. But I think you still have to look at, like, why aren't any of England's batters getting better in the test setup? Like they're, they're getting into it, into the setup through good pawns and counter cricket, looking like the part for a bit and then getting worse. And I don't think it's just because they're being worked out. Like Pope, we've said basically like for quite a long time that he, he looks frantic every time he comes out to bat. And yet that's still the case. And obviously that's a bit on Pope, but like that's also down to the coaches, right? And like Sibley looked like a player who had a game plan last year who was uh, content to 
sort of bat time and, and, and bat long and then was getting a bit of stick for that, even though he was playing pretty well, say, against New Zealand. He got that really slow 60-odd to save a test match, uh, but then looked like he wasn't so happy to be doing that anymore. And is that a coaching thing or are the coaches not giving the right positive reinforcement? I don't know, but it just <laughs> it, it feels like it, the, England are losing because their players aren't as good as Australia's, but their players are getting worse and I don't really understand why. And I don't think we've heard enough from the coaches about what they're doing about why those players aren't getting any better, basically. They're kind of just, Silver would like to say he gives, he gives a player one test too many and then drops them. But it doesn't, it almost doesn't feel like they're actually helping them work out in between those times. Like, uh, like so I'm going on a bit, a bit of ramble now, but you even go back even further than that to when, uh, to, to when Rory Burns uh, was fighting for his place at the start of the 2019 Ashes. Right. And, this, and I think this is, this is a general thing about how little coaching, proper coaching actually happens at the top level. Uh, he went back to Surrey to fix his game out, didn't he? he? He didn't go to an England coach. He goes back to his, uh, to his county side and then does some actual technical work there and then goes and has a really good Ashes series. I don't think you hear that much about a player who you know, goes to the England setup, talks to an England coach and is like, yeah, now, now my game's clicked. I've worked out this technical thing and now I'm going to be batting better. That doesn't happen in the England setup, it feels like. I completely get all that. Um... But they, they must, they spend so many hours netting and they have coaches there. They, they must be talking about technical stuff when guys aren't scoring runs. Um, before we get to Australia, we have, we've had quite a few questions uh, that are kind of on that, on that point. Ed, Ed asks, is the guy from Whiplash available to be England's batting coach? He says, uh, it seems to me that Graham Thorpe needs a huge amount of stick. He's presided uh, over one of the limpest areas of English batting, Ryan asked. So when England ne- inevitably lose the Ashes again in Australia, probably four nil, four one, or five nil, who carries a can for it and loses their job? Is it Tom Harrison? Is it Chris Hillwood? Is it Joe Root? All of the above. Joe, I kind of think is is it is it as simple as the coaches aren't getting it right, or is it just that England's players are just miles off what Australia have at the moment? Silwood and Root are coming under a lot of criticism at the moment, but would another coach captain combination be be able to achieve much more if we had? better batting coaches would that really make that much of a difference uh well first of all ed uh, thanks to ed for sending that question about whiplash because embarrassingly i hadn't actually seen the film and so didn't get the cultural reference so i went and watched it on saturday night it was one of the best films i've ever watched so thank you ed that was um that was definitely overdue um it's odd isn't it because graham thorpe i think is hugely respected he obviously knows batting inside out the players think he's fantastic if Butch was here, I'm sure he would say Thorpe is a, a master technician. I, I wonder if it's more to do with the kind of philosophy around coaching at the top level where it very much seems to be, if they're good enough to get to this stage, then you sort of leave them to their own devices and, and you just, you're sort of almost there to kind of encourage them and, and be more of a kind of mental coach than a technical one. And that seems to be what a lot of the players enjoy and think they respond well to. But and, you know, if it's going well, then fine, absolutely leave them to it. But at what point do you say, this is not working? Because I think that point passed a long time ago. Uh, and I think we all are in kind of general agreement here. And it's not like, it's interesting with, usually at this point in the Ashes, we would get floods of emails from people with loads of new names that should be in the side. And we haven't really had that. I think Jake Libby got thrown out there by one listener. But, you know, that would be a real punt based on his record. So if we if we're kind of saying yes these are the best players maybe one or two changes then they've got to be properly coached they've got to be the issues they have need to be worked out they can't just be left 
to figure them out themselves or, or hope they come good. Uh, and that's not just technical stuff. I think Ben on Pope is, is right. The fact that he's still into however many tests he's played, he still looks frantic like he's walking out there on his debut. The coaches have to take some responsibility for that. Graham Thorpe was such a cool-headed batter and seems to know Pope really well. I, I can't work out how he hasn't had more influence on, on letting Pope relax into his innings. And look, obviously players have to take some responsibility, but so do the coaches, because if they don't take some responsibility, then what's the point in having them there in the first place? I think it's especially the case with this England side and with the kind of the project they sort of set themselves. Like if you remember back to that New Zealand series in 2019 where they picked that, that very young squad, they had, what, seven players under the age of 24. Like, often, if you're, you know, I guess the normal way of selection would be that, you know, a batter has, you know, six or seven really good years in county cricket and they have a really, really good year, they get picked. And then you need to kind of back them to do the, what they've been doing in county cricket to then uh, try and replicate that in test cricket. And they're like, you know, 26, 27, and you hope you can get some good years out of them in that way. But with this England team, they picked some very, very young players who were kind of at the start of their careers. They kind of identified as these guys have sort of kind of got something special which can help them to, to, to kind of to, to crack test cricket. But that's always going to be a group of players that will need a lot more shaping. Like, I think sometimes that, where that approach, you don't want, you know, loads of voices saying, you need to be doing this, no, you need to be doing this, you need to get your front foot here, no, it's your back foot that's a problem sort of thing. But... Uh, and, and, and sometimes you do just need a bit of encouragement to say go out and do this but with this set of players I think they were always going to need a bit more uh, hands-on stuff just because of the stage of their careers they were at basically like they hadn't they hadn't yet properly cracked first class cricket you know they didn't have loads of first class hundreds and first class runs to, to fall back on they hadn't been in loads of different situations they hadn't been in anything like test cricket before and that so it's even more strange that they didn't sort of say like properly take this group of players and, and mould them instead they kind of just, yeah, just let them sort of stagnate, essentially. So, and just, we're going back a bit here, but, and I don't want to jump on the sort of anti-Silverwood brigade too much at this point. We've got another three tests to go for all that, but it does seem extraordinary, and this isn't with the benefit of hindsight, I think we all said this at the time, that Silverwood was chosen above Gary Kirsten. If you think of all the things we're, we're talking about here, how useful Gary Kirsten would be to this setup, And I know apparently he didn't present as well as Silverwood, but we'll just look at his CV. And there was even some suggestions that he wasn't prepared to do the kind of the whole thing. Well, is that a problem? I think increasingly there should be a red ball head coach and a white ball head coach anyway, go back to how we had it before when it perhaps didn't make sense. But with the schedule and the separation of players now, I think it does. What an asset Gary Kirsten would be to this, to this batting unit right now. And just as a head coach, I mean, we know Milan goes to Kirsten every winter to to work on his technique to improve his game. Well, Milan seems to be going pretty well, certainly in comparison to the rest of them. That looked like a bad appointment at the time. It looks worse as every day goes by uh, to employ, employ your... Remember, he wasn't even assistant coach. They've employed their bowling coach as their head coach and now their chief selector. Uh, it's all a bit bonkers. I thought um, just on, your, on the point that's been made about um, about his sort of starting off quite well in this test side and then the more time they spent spend in it they're kind of you don't really know where their game's going it's quite perhaps it's quite telling you know push aside root who's obviously a freak um it's that it's quite telling that, that milan um was basically out of this test setup for three years and he's come in and he's kind of looked the part immediately uh and that's kind of almost a nice sort of point of comparison to the guys who've kind of been in it daily two years and, and kind of where their game's going whereas Milan obviously a level of that is his experience he's been around he's one of the older guys he's not 
you know, he's different in this stage of his career to an Ollie Pope or a, or a Zach Crawley or a Dom Sibley. Um, but, you know, I think that is, that's quite interesting that he's, he's just not been there for three years and he, and he comes in and he kind of looks the part immediately. And he's, you know, it's, it's almost interesting to see now where does his game go? Does he keep improving or does he kind of follow the similar pattern that we keep on seeing where when guys come in, they, they're kind of, they've made some runs in carry cricket. They immediately score in those runs and then suddenly they just begin to stagnate and it's kind of the same thing over and over again where they, they don't have a, they don't have a sort of phase where they sort of plummet a bit, but then manage to fix their game in that setup. They have to kind of leave it altogether. Um, Joe, just quickly on Ollie Pope again, do you think he's the most in danger of losing his spot from that top seven, a couple of Paulders missiles again, two low scores again, um, but but who if, if he if he does drop out who comes in for him England aren't exactly sport for choice there Dan Lawrence averages twenty seven in Test cricket Besto even less than that over the last three years there've been reports today that a few players who are involved with the BBL at the moment could be added to the squad soon so that Sakima Mood uh, James Vince Ben Duckett. yeah England's eleven for the Sydney Test could look uh, extraordinary look more like their kind of B team for the T twenty um, yeah I think Pope is the most uh, under threat of that top seven um you know take your pick in terms of runs scored but I think his the manner of his dismissals his sort of demeanor at the crease um I think he I think he is under threat and I've, I've been a big supporter of Ollie Pope but I think I probably would drop him for the next test I think it, it looks like he's so desperate to succeed that it's just being channeled in all the wrong ways and, and I don't think that's going to get any better over the course of a series I think that could get worse in quite a damaging way so I would I would take him out the firing line for now and then I guess you're looking at you're looking at Lawrence or Bairstow really for that spot um the question is I mean Bairstow obviously has the, the Ashes 100 in Perth which everyone is, is knows knows well full well he did that it's been talked about a lot but that was a long time ago do Dan Lawrence's mountain of runs for the Lions in Australia two years ago have more currency um I would be tempted to look at Lawrence just because Bairstow has got a track record of, of failure in test cricket now in a way that Lawrence is just starting up and has shown glimmers and he's looks like he's got the kind of, at least the attitude for it. And we haven't yet seen if he's got the, got the game for test cricket. That being said, I'm sure that if they do drop Pope, which I think they probably will on balance, I'd be amazed if they don't go for Bairstow. I think they will want that extra experience, even though the, the recent record is poor. Um, and just as a as a sort of sidebar, um, talking about that very poor fielding side, best I would certainly add add a lot to that in England's eleven. Not that you should be picking your side on <laughs> based on their fielding, but you know it is a is an added little benefit. Um, the interesting one is Burns because I have to be honest, you guys can tell me I didn't see his thirty live. I only saw the highlights, and it looked like he got a few nice shots away, but I I didn't know what happened either side of those. But I mean Taha, you saw every ball. Was he looking? more confident at the crease or was there a few nice shots in amongst some um, sort of jumpiness? Yeah, it was weird because obviously after the first innings, I kind of thought I can't see a way back for Burns for the next test. I think they'd have to kind of get rid of him and maybe his, Hamid is the kind of the opener who keeps his spot. Um, but then in, in, that, um, in that second innings, Burns kind of, you could tell that he kind of, he was kind of adapting a bit. He was starting to leave the ball a bit more. He was sort of, you know, initially in the series, he's kind of just, he's looked to play and there was a bit more discipline to it. Um, and he was kind of, kind of finding his method. Obviously with Burns, you never kind of, 
you never really understand where he's at with his game because obviously because of the technique. Um, but I thought the 34 was probably kind of enough to suggest there's something there to work with. Whereas the three innings before that, you were kind of like, he's struggling here, not just with the angles that Stark's creating, but like against Cummins as well. It's just the extra bounce. He just, he's not reacting to it in a way that suggests that he's going to have any success. Whereas that 34 offered a little bit of something. Um, and in this kind of, in the context of England, this series of 34 is quite a big score. Um, so I think he's probably, I'd be kind of surprised if they dropped him basically. He's also the kind of senior opener, right? He's the kind of one they've backed for so long and it's almost like you want to give him just that extra chance. Um, so I think he'll, I think he'll still be all right. Um, I'm not sure about, I wonder if they, they must surely be thinking about Crawley as well. I mean, they, you know, he's obviously been talked about as a guy who kind of would fit in these conditions and you can kind of see it. But um, Hamid is, Hamid is curious because he, you know, he, he played quite well in that first test, I thought. Um, and that just, it was just, it's weird because you're, you're looking at the way he got out in the, in the first innings of this test. And it's just, it's just a bad, bad shot rather than any sort of real technical failure. And you're kind of wondering if he can just, if it is just more of a mental thing, then then you keep him in. Um, so I don't know, but I think, yeah, I'd be. I think I think Burns will Burns will keep a spot, but I don't know if they're they're pushing really for for Crawley um, over Hamid. That would be kind of that looks like that might be the judgment call. I think Burns is probably safe. He's 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 had such a strange England career where he's had quite a few periods now where he's looked horrendous. But he kind of once he gets going, he does look quite fluid, as you said, Joe. That. Actually, once he got through that early period on in the second innings, he actually looked, he actually looked pretty good. Um, on, on Hamid, it's interesting. Hamid now, Hamid basically averages the same since his comeback as Sibley did this year, which I think it's, it's quite interesting how how easy a ride Hamid does get, partly because of how amazing the comeback story was and how elegant he looks at the crease. But I think. To me, Taha, I think that first innings dismissal is not an aberration for, for Hamid. I think he he does not hit bad balls well enough compared to the average test bats batter. Um, I think when he bats particularly slowly, I think part a lot of that is he, he blocks bad balls that other players hit away for four. Uh, that, that that was a very strange shot. Um, it, was a, it was a half volley that he, he should have hit, hit straight, but he hit it horribly across the line. I'm just imagining if Dom Sibley played that shot, imagine how, how many column inches are spent on Sibley's weird weird technique. I think Hamid has had quite an easy ride and when he scores a gritty 25, people get more excited than when Sibley might do that. And I think that's partly because he look, Hamid does look really good when he scores a gritty 25, but Sibley or Burns looks particularly ugly when they when they do so let's get Butch's thoughts on the on the second test um Butch you were adamant from day one of the Adelaide test that England should have gone in with a spinner a lot of people thought that after how Jack Leach went at Brisbane 13 overs for 100 odd that England should take him out of the firing line what why do you think why did you think throughout the whole test that England got that call wrong <laughs> well I mean we had Ollie Robinson bowling off spin for a start one of our five seamers was bowling spin um Oh man, look, there's there's a there's a template for for playing cricket in Australia, um, and it pretty much 100% includes playing a spin bowler. Um, you know, how often do we hear about 
commentators or players or captains moaning about what happens to the Kookaburra ball, how flat things get, um, how difficult it is to kind of make the ball move off the seam or through the air. Um, and yet we played five bowlers who re- rely upon movement off the seam and through the air and didn't pick a spinner. I mean, it's just, it's just absolutely mental. I mean, it hasn't changed. You know, the cricket, in Australia, yeah, okay, there's, there's day-night test matches, which, by the way, Australia win 100% of. So it kind of wasn't the big, this big chance that, that people were saying we had of getting into the test series was, was by having a day-night test match because Australia happened to win all of theirs at home as well. Um, but nothing else has changed. Adelaide, Adelaide Oval is still flat. You still, have to, you still have to bowl impact overs of pace, um, keep things very tight in order to wheedle out um, batsmen, um, although not so much in our first innings, but definitely in the second one. Um, and you need the spinner to be able to play a part as a wicket taker and, and somebody that keeps the lid on scoring. And that's just, that's just a fact. There is no, there's no <laughs> nothing has changed to make that not a fact. And it will be the same at Melbourne. Um, Sydney for sure um, even Tasmania so it's just I don't know I'm, I'm kind of fed up with talking about it and, and, and that's not being rude to you that's just I've just had enough <laughs> um, On I, I guess Mark Wood's exclusion was interesting I get that England want to keep him fresh etc and make sure that he doesn't break down but England were 1-0 down with four tests to go it was a week pretty much between his last serious bowl and the first day at Adelaide. Um, and England end up picking four quite samey bowlers, who uh, all of whom kind of prefer bowling the new ball. And England almost prepared for this test match with the idea is, OK, we're going to make sure that we, 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 we pick a side that will make the most of the new pink ball on the lights. But that's only, what, 10 to 20% of, of, of a test match. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. England... England template for winning for winning series against Australia is actually not ten eleven, but it's also it's actually two thousand five. You know, your, your spinner might not be the, might not be Shane Warne, right? Might not be um, Anil Kumble or somebody like that. But the spinner has a, a role to play, and then your bowling attack needs to have, needs to consist of guys who are good with the with the new ball, um, i.e. Matthew Hoggard, brilliant swing bowler with the new bowler at, ball at home. Um, and away from home, for that matter. Um, then you've got your old ball specialists in Jones and Flintoff. Um, and then, you know, somebody of extreme pace and bounce in, in Harmson. Uh, and, uh, and you have the spin bowler to bowl, to, to, to bowl the overs where it is completely unconducive for the seamers to have the ball in their hand. Because I'm all for sort of resting the bowlers, but I quite I quite like to be able to do it whilst the game is in progress, not not when you not not just have them sit out, have your have your most likely impact players sit out of the game, but actually have them be able to rest while the game is in progress, and that is what the spinner allows you to do. Spinner, a good spinner, or you know somebody somebody that's got a bit of confidence in themselves, and of course that's not Jack Leach. But again, you know, again, I'm tired till I'm blue in the face talking about what they could and should have done with Jack Leach during the summer in order either to know that they, he could do that job or to have left him out and picked somebody else. Mm. Um, but just to not play a spin bowler, it's just, it's just, it's mental. 
And, you know, and, and the thing is, we're talking about that. And the facts of the matter are that even if we had played the right sort of bowling attack, not being able to score any runs in the first innings doomed us anyway. So it's kind of, it's kind of moot. But, but I know you've asked me that because it's one of my, it's one of my favourite hobby horses. So there we go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right about it being moot. If you get bowled out for not many in the first innings, especially after having the platform that Rootman once again gave England, you're not going to win many test matches. Um, and I wanted to ask you on the batting because I think people are broadly accepting that this is roughly the, the group of England's best batters they have at the moment. And a lot of them have shown promise at various points in their test career. Joe Root, Ben Stokes aside, you know, Burt Burns has got Ashes 100, he's got 200 against New Zealand, the number one or number two best side in the world at the moment. Uh, Ollie Pope had that brilliant series in South Africa. Um, wh- why do you think um, those players haven't really taken the next step in their development of test cricketers and if anything have regressed? And Do you think that the coaching staff has, has a bigger role to play? And I was wondering that when you were playing for England, how how closely did you work with the coaches when you were going through Lena, Lena Trotz? And um, yeah, how, how, how does that work? How does that kind of dynamic work? Um, I'd work, the, the, the sort of, the tweaks to technique and, and whatever would always be done outside of, outside of tours or outside of um, series at home. You try not to leave yourself in a position where you were having to make wholesale adjustments um, whilst the series was in play because you you know you're supposed to be thinking about and concentrating on watching the ball and making runs. It's very difficult to also add technical changes to that equation as well. Um, so so very little really. Um, I don't as to why why they don't seem to be getting any better. I think potentially it's because there's not a lot of changing going on. Um, you look at somebody like Steve Smith or even Marnus Labuschagne, two guys who kind of uh, came into the, well, Labuschagne not so much, but Smith in particular, came into the game, into test cricket with a certain sort of idiosyncratic te- technique. And it's still idiosyncratic, by the way. But he had a taste of it. And then on the and then once he was out of the side, went away and, and worked really hard to make a few fundamental changes in order to, to bed in um, some things that would make him more consistent at test match level. Um, and I, and I, I don't really, I don't see that a lot in, in English players. Um, I didn't see it a massive amount while I, while I was playing. I mean, you know, I, I bring this up simply because I had two careers as an England player, one where I averaged 25 and another where I averaged 40. And the, and the second one was because I made fundamental changes in order to be more consistent at test match level. It wasn't anything to do with, you know, um, making more runs in, in the county game. I could make runs in the county game. It was doing things that made it more likely that I would be consistent um, playing the test matches. And you did that away from playing for And you did that playing when you weren't playing for England? You didn't do that mid-series or anything? That well, was... I, I was... No, no, I was left out. I, was, I had a year... I had a year or year and a half out of the out of the England team, um, you know, and got and only got picked back in really because um, because of uh, injuries and, and you know a bit of luck really. But when but once I got back in, I had I had made those changes to the way that I to work to everything really to my stance, grip, back lift, all of those types of things. Um, because because what I what I did before wasn't working, so you know that, that's that's basically it, isn't it? If you keep doing the same thing that you've always done 
without making any real adjustments, you're, you're unlikely to become more consistent. Mm. Uh, and I'm not saying that that's what I'm not saying that's what's happened with the England guys at the moment. I think that they're massively under the cosh. Um, confidence has a huge part to play in all of that. If you if you haven't if you're sort of getting dismissed, and and the batting lineup has collapses on a regular basis, there's always that sort of spectre in the dressing room, and it and it erodes confidence. But I do think that there are, you know, there are times when you can look at what you do and think to yourself, okay, but Dom Sibley might, might, is doing that at the moment. You know, he's got a lot of flack for not going on an A tour, but staying home and trying to do something um, to, to sort of adjust his technique to make him more successful at the highest level. Um, and I hope it works out for him. And I, th- and I think players need to do that. All players need to do that. Didn't you, you don't think that actually in the past, coaches have actually been responsible for, for players making improvements mid-series that, that often. That's, that's not really how it works, but it sounds No, like. that's not, that's never, that's never really how it works. I mean, the, the guys, you know, will, will take time to work with, with, with people at Loughborough and things like that. I'm sure that there are camps and whatever. But generally speaking, a, a, a professional batter will have somebody at his county or, at, you know, at home who will, who will do, the majority of his work with and then you you know you turn up and the, and the coach's job for the England team is to make observation um, and throw a lot of balls really I mean that's kind of what they do uh, so uh, I can I understand you know if you've got, if you've got somebody with the title of, of batting coach on the on the trip and bowling coach on the trip the, the focus um, moves to them when the, when the batters and bowlers are not performing particularly well but um but their job on tours is very, very much maintenance as opposed to sort of fundamentally overhauling things. Mm. Um, and lastly, I want to get your, your thoughts on Rory Burns uh, not taking the first ball for a couple of innings in a row and then taking the first ball again as, you know, someone who's opened the batting. How do those conversations work? Because Burns has pretty much opened face the first ball over the entirety of his first class career. He had face first ball in every single test innings except for ones where there's a night watchman with him. Um, so, A, what do you make of it? And, and B, how, how do those conversations work between two openers on, on first balls? I don't know, actually. I mean, I, I, I can't remember. I always took first ball um, when I opened. And obviously, it's sort of like the second half of my career, I, I batted three or even four for, for Surrey. So, um, but I always opened when I, when I, was, when I went out first. Um, just preference, I suppose. Um, so I think I remember having a conversation with Mike Atherton um, in my first test match, asking if he would mind, you know, and he was, he was fine about it. He didn't care one way or the other. So I, so my name was always in front of his on the, on the team sheet and when, when we opened together. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting that you would, that you would do it and then uh, be removed from the firing, well, removed from doing it or, or remove yourself from doing it and then go back to doing it again. Um, I, you know, I suppose I wouldn't read too much into it, really. It's just uh, as long as the as the openers have a decent enough relationship, then you can you can fiddle around with that sort of stuff at, at your leisure, I suppose. We we should talk about Australia. Tar, I wanted to get your thoughts on Labuschagne and, and Warner in particular. They England bowled pretty well, if if a bit short on that first day. Um, and yeah, there are a couple of drops of Labuschagne, but they were they were really really good. Warner must be gutted that he didn't get hundred. That that dismissal was so painful. The entire offside to play with rank long hop and picks the only guy in front of square on the offside. Yeah, and the Warner knock was 
uh, kind of watching David Warner nowadays, even in that kind of T20 World Cup and in, in, in Test cricket now as well. He was obviously um, England, ball, England, ball, England were really tight with him. He really struggled to to kind of get going at the start of his innings. Like it took him a while to get off the mark after 50 balls. I mean, he barely had any runs on the board. But he's at that kind of sweet spot in that he maybe sort of physically maybe not be in the in the condition he might have been a few years ago. He's obviously getting older, um, but because of the conditions, which he's historically always scored runs in, and because of experience, he can kind of, he's not the type of guy who's, who looks like he's panicking at all in the fact that he's like got three runs off 50 balls. He kind of knows exactly how he can play it here. The, the ball, you know, the ball might do a bit at the start. Um, and, you know, like, like we talked about the ping ball, we might do a bit of extra in the start, but then, then it, then it kind of does nothing in the middle. And so he kind of got in, got in the zone in that period he kind of went going and you never with, with other batters you might have thought oh this this sort of this pressure where you've you've just not got any runs you faced you know you've you've batted for a couple of hours you're just not going anywhere that would have got to other people but because of David Warner because where he is in the game his level of experience his record behind him um he just didn't panic and it wasn't it wasn't like a rem- innings I remember I can't really even remember a shot from it right now but it was what David Warner does in Australia he'll get a big score it was a 90 something but it's, it's a big score uh Lab- Labuschagne um was dropped quite a few times it's probably the and he he was the one who kind of obviously because of his the way he he is animated the crease he kind of tells you that he's like struggling with the pitch a bit it's the ball's kind of popping out of the length and he'll you kind of shout about it, weren't he, on, on stunt mic? And so you could tell that it, it wasn't a straightforward surface for him. He wasn't probably as fluent as he was um, in, in the first innings in Brisbane. Um, and, and he had his luck. Butler dropped him. Um, but I don't know. He just he finds a way. He, he, he kind of doesn't. It's hard to really spot a weakness in him when you're watching him in these conditions. He clips off the legs when it's straight. He's always looking to score. He might. He did get bogged down in this innings. It was probably. I think. I think I might be right in saying that it was probably his slowest Test century yet. Um, but he had kind of has all the shots. He is so good when he's leaving. He knows. That's why I almost kind of think he could. He'd be all right if he if he opened in these conditions. He he just has that immaculate judgment. Uh, and yeah, I mean, he's just gonna. He is just going to be the leading run scorer in the series. I think I can't. I can't think of anybody. Uh, anybody else who's going to who's going to who's going to beat him. He's he was excellent. And then Smith did what he did. He's not even, you know, he's probably not even sixty percent of where he can be, and yet he'll still get ninety odd. Um, and it's just those three, isn't it? It's as as good as Travis Head has been. Travis Head has been in this series. You you look at those three, um, and they might not even be. You know, operating at their highest level, Labuschagne probably is, but the other two, they're still kind of getting into it after having played in that T20 World Cup. And you just think they're going to score. They're going to get. They, they've got into the 90s now. They're going to score hundreds in the series. It's just hard, very hard not to envisage that happening. Yeah, and Tom has picked out kind of the the, the big three there, and, and they've obviously been excellent. But I think in general, we need to give Australia a lot of credit. I think Australia are the better side. You look down that lineup; they are the better side. But um, England have underperformed, but Australia have been really on their game. You just have to look through their team and pretty much to a man, every player has had some kind of impact in this, some kind of positive impact in the series so far after, after two tests. And you look down England's lineup and it's only three or four really who have done anything of note. And that 
that's impressive so early in a series um, especially given a lot of them haven't played test cricket for a, a very long time even some haven't played Red Bull cricket for a long time to have come in as hot as they have done uh, and really just given England no let up with the exception of the, the couple of Milan route partnerships they've just been all over England and, and whenever there has been an opportunity they've just absolutely seized it and uh, yeah obviously it doesn't come easily to us giving Australia too much credit but I think um, as much as England have, have helped them along the way Australia have been really impressive so far M- much more impressive than I expected them to be I have to say and getting better as well Joe um, Todd Jai Richardson taking five wickets in the second innings in his first test match in, in nearly three years and, and Cam Green impressing yet again especially with the absence of Hazelwood and Cummins I thought he really stepped up and looked like a proper frontline bowler at times well, it says that all, doesn't it, that Richardson's just taken a match-winning fire through and I guess probably won't play the next test if, if Hazelwood is is fit and Cummins obviously will be back. Um, imagine that kind of luxury for, for England. Um, yeah, they've got they've got a wealth of, of options. And, you know, talking about um, whether Hamid should stay in, whether Byrne should stay in, if they had a player of Kawaja's uh, quality on the bench, they'd absolutely be making a change to that opening spot. But... Um, but they don't, and Australia do, and Australia could even, I'm sure they won't do it quite yet, but Harris obviously is, is probably the one player who hasn't really had an impact for Australia. They could they could change a winning side. They could actually strengthen a winning side that are already 2 up in the series by bringing in Kawaja. I don't think they'll do that quite yet, but it just shows the the, the depth that they've got um, in comparison to England. The, um, the point you make about Green, I think he's just been... A bit of a revelation, really. I, obviously, he hasn't really got runs with the bat yet. He got 30-odd when they were getting the declaration. Um, but I think ev- kind of coming into the series, you know, he's batting at six. Um, and he's he obviously started kind of... He, he really ha- didn't make an impact with the ball um, in his first test series against India. Didn't take a wicket. He's only started to really get into his rhythm and bowling in, in the Sheffield Shield as well. Um, to come in and kind of almost basically have the wood over Joe Root. Um, I don't think Australia would have expected that when they, you know, when they turned up the Gabba, it was Hazelwood who got Root out. And you think now this is going to be the key battle for Root in terms of batters in the series. Uh, and then you come into the second test without Hazelwood and you're thinking, right, Root's got him out of the system. There's no Cummins as well. There's no, there's not that guy who's going to be challenging Root very much outside them, um, outside off. Uh, and then Green comes in and there's just something about, his height must have something to do with it. Um, he just gets sort of kind of enough movement and, and, he, and he troubles the outside edge. And he's obviously making such an impact in terms of allowing first Pat Cummins in the last test and now Steve Smith in, in this test to um, kind of, you know, basically let those premium quicks, you know, have a have more of a rest. Um, a line can obviously hold up and end all day, but then to have another guy, I mean, that's just, you know, that's just, that's gold basically for Australia. And it was interesting today that he didn't bowl, Green didn't bowl in the first session. Um, he did eventually come on uh, and he looked brilliant immediately. Uh, I think Steve Smith said afterwards that he'd basically been told to kind of manage his workload because it, Green has had quite a few back injury problems and he's been kind of managed all the way through in the last couple of years with his bowling. Um, but if he is protected, right, um, and if he does start making runs, um, which he did start to do in this test. And I mean, that just causes England even more of a headache, really. Yeah. And also kind of, you know, like, like England with, with when they get Stokes back, a, a full, you know, fully informed Ben Stokes back, actually there's the addition of 
a really good all-rounder makes such a difference to a side. The makeup of it changes overnight. And as you say, he's he looks a completely different bowler this winter to what he looked like last winter. Um, ben, Matt asks, what do you think the reasoning was behind sending the, the Lions home? Surely it would have been handy to have a few more options around as some players look unselectable and the squad looks thin. Also, what is the reasoning behind Overton's position? He's hugely unlikely to play and is effectively another Wokes or Robinson. Surely Mahmood would have been more handy. Yeah, two really good questions. I mean, the Lions thing, I can't really make much sense of and seems like another one. So Chris Silver, obviously at the start of the summer, said that uh, it was determined to have no Ashes debutants uh, and to give everyone who might play in the Ashes a go before then, which again, seems like one of those things those plans it's maybe wiser to have behind closed doors than in front of it because it's something that people can either hold you to or that you end up holding yourself to more than you should like I think that there are players in that squad that would like to have those options I think that James Bracey probably got a bit of uh, his too much has maybe read into his struggles against New Zealand when he was sort of batting out of his normal position doing a job he doesn't normally do uh, he's not an especially good keeper so that meant that he was taking low confidence into his batting and was then struggling and it was only two test matches and then he gets you know a very good hundred against the Lions but is uh, on the next plane home so yeah him especially would be one that I wonder why more consideration wasn't given to uh, to keeping him along. The Overton one I can I can understand why he's in the squad in that uh, he is a capable injury replacement for uh, one of those four that played in that second test match uh, and England might well get injuries. I mean, you know, he's, we've seen he's a, he's a useful batter. Uh, he's not as good a bowler as any of them. Uh, but yeah, I would also have had him move the squad. And that was one of the things we said when the squad was announced was that it just seemed a bit uh, small, basically, and that you could have basically picked the same squad with a couple of, like, uh, sort of exciting guys in there and it would have had quite a different feel about it. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think the mood makes the difference in this series, but especially because England, uh, for all the issues with selection for all they have occasionally bowled a bit too short. I don't think they've bowled too badly in this series. I think that's been their issue. And I don't think there is a, a batter out there that could exactly solve the questions. But yeah, those are two puzzling things for sure, I think. Yeah, with just with the Lions being sent home, I wondered how much a kind of mental well-being is, is an aspect of it, that they don't want lots of players around who aren't going to play or be very likely to play. I'm, I'm not saying that's the right thing to do, but just kind of trying to make sense of, of why you would make that call because um, we know full well from previous Ashes tours that come Sydney is anyone's guess what the 11 will be um, and you know if they do end up picking one or two who are playing in the big bash but having sent home the Lions who they have pinpointed as the best Red Bull players outside of the test squad then that's just another example of England looking clueless and, and planning becoming this kind of joke word really um, it is, a, it is a curious one. Stephen asks, as a fan, would you rather have England's Ashes record in the 21st century? So basically win or draw close series at home and get pummeled away, barring one glorious exception in 10-11, or Australia's walkovers at home, but no away series wins since 2001. Um, ben, do you want to answer that one? Uh, yeah, I think you would rather have England's just because we've had the two most memorable triumphs in that time, just about. Maybe you'd say that 13-14 was a touch more memorable than 10-11. But, I mean, 2005, that, that trumps everything, right? Having won that series, uh, you, you, you take, you know, you, you, you take 15-0 over the next three away series uh, uh, as, a, as a trade-off for that. So, yeah, I think I'd just about take England's, I reckon. 
Um, yeah, it's, it's a good point that Australia haven't won one in England uh, for the last, what, 19 years, 20 years? So, yeah. Yeah, but England are just abject in Australia at the moment. They've lost 11 out of the last 12 tests. But, you know, I'm sure any of our Australian listeners will heartily disagree with me. But how much fun is it just hammering us every single time? I mean, they must be. I know they want to win 5 0. I, I accept that. But they must want tighter test matches. And that, that's the thing. It is. Uh, yeah, I would, I would definitely keep keep England's record uh, as my personal choice because it's just, you know, it's, it's we're still quite early in the series. Two hammerings, are fine, whatever. But if we come to uh, Perth and uh, sorry Sydney and then Hobart and there's still massive thrashings, that's not really much fun for anyone, is it? I mean, I don't know. You tell me, Aussies. Perhaps it is. I, I think I think the Aussie listeners will say yes. It yes, it is pretty fun. And, and and it was I, I think I, I think I'd probably take Australia's recent record just because it is objectively better, right? Like if they absolutely obliterate England and Australia and then at at worst narrowly lose in England, that is that is doing better than narrowly winning at home and getting obliterated overseas, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but but um, I mean it's just go back to Australia not winning a series in England since uh since what, two thousand and one, whereas England have won a series overseas more recently. You know, three nil in twenty thirteen, uh, Bell's Ashes. I mean, I mean that that was probably more of an an obliteration than we give it credit for. I know there, there were two of the games were were close, but it was three nil. Pe- people at, at one point were predicting a sort of a eight nil over the over the two series, which uh, <laughs> the second one was five nil, but not the way that people thought it was going to be. Uh, but no, yeah, I think I think I would still take England, especially because I, I think yeah, the, the the these last two series haven't been much fun and I think at least, at least it's, it's almost a good uh, uh, good thing for England to do if, if, if Australia are going to win at least make it as sort of uh, as boring and as, and as uh, you know as, as, as little joy taken out of it as possible uh, and that, that's the best we can hope for I guess that's a, that's a nice upbeat way to end the show um, and yeah if any Aussie listeners want to disagree with Ben or Joe they're, they're at Ben underscore wisdom and at Joe underscore wisdom on Twitter this has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast in partnership with Charles Tirrett. Remember, please enter the competition to be in with a chance of winning a £500 voucher and also use that discount code. All details are in our description. Cheers, R. Cheers, Joe. Cheers, Ben. We'll be back in a few days' time, just before Christmas and just before the Boxing Day test. Cheers. Podcast Network.